0: Hey! Hi
1: everyone, this is Sarah Loman and.
0: Jonathan Soma. I
1: forget you have a first name sometimes, <laughs> Soma. Uh, what we're doing right now is you've probably if you've been listening to us before we've been bringing you live events from our masters of social gastronomy series um and while that's all fun a lot of times we feel like you the podcast listeners kind of miss out that you don't get to see our live show and you don't get to see our visuals and things like that and we want to reformat this a little bit so that it's it's more beneficial to you right sama yeah but if this is your first time here then this is all we do and it's great mm. um i wrote a blog called four pounds flower and i look at the history of food and why it's relevant and important today. And Donathan Soma, what do you do?
0: I run a school called the Brooklyn Brainery, where we offer low-cost, accessible classes about anything and everything.
1: We were just talking about the big art piece that's up right now at the old Domino Sugar Factory, which is Kara Walker's enormous sugar sphinx that you've seen.
0: Yes, there's not just a sugar sphinx. There are also a lot of children with baskets no that are way. also made out of sugar.
1: Um, so, what was the experience like going to see this? The like Carowalk, if you don't know, she's a, a tremendous artist, and she her work has dealt with uh, race and class, and she's kind of appropriated 19th century art forms of silhouette making um, to do. I don't know. Like I've always been a big fan of of her work and the way that it deals with the history of um of black people in america and this piece kind of looks at slave culture and how it's linked to the production of sugar that uh, we wouldn't be able to eat as much sweet stuff even in america today if not for well it's it's still pretty close to slavery how sugar is made today so this piece kind of speaks to it so you saw this thing in brooklyn at an old sugar refinery at an
0: old sugar refinery you go inside and the whole place is covered in molasses. There's molasses everywhere, like
1: dripping from the walls like dripping
0: from the walls, and you spend a lot of time trying to figure out if the molasses dripping from the walls is part of the piece or if it is simply an old sugar factory with molasses dripping from the walls, and it is just an old molasses no, it's not a molasses factory, but yes, no it's it's the walls are covered in sugar, it smells like sugar everywhere. Every single orifice has sugar in it. And supposedly, as far as I know, they did not plant sugar in the factory. There just happens to be sugar everywhere.
1: And then what is the actual piece like?
0: Big. It was amazing. It was fun. I actually personally liked the smaller sculptures. Mm -hmm. But it's all of these, I guess, children. They're Hmm. cast out of sugar. And they're like uh, like hard candy sugar as opposed to like uh, sugar cube sugar.
1: The big sphinx, yeah, it looks like like a sugar cube. It looks like a big sugar cube. Sugar.
0: And so these little sculptures, they they're these kids. They're carrying these baskets, and then you look in the baskets, and they're full of like a sugar syrup or just the syrup in general. I'm assuming it's sugar, and then there are like pieces of other children inside of the baskets cast out of sugar. It's horrifying and incredible. So
1: this space that it's in is really fascinating. It's in the Domino sugar refinery that has been sitting on the East River right across from lower Manhattan and in a fairly populous part of Brooklyn. And it's been there since the 1880s. And I think a little known fact about New York City is that New York one of the reasons it became this economic powerhouse is through sugar refining. So over the next hour, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about the history of sugar and the history of sugar in New York, and then the second half of this hour, Soma is gonna talk about, well, really, why sugar began to die out in New York City. Because in the mid um, 20th century, it began to be replaced by artificial sweeteners. Are you talking about high fructose corn syrup? Yeah,
0: so first it started to be replaced with artificial sweeteners, and then later, high fructose corn syrup battled it. They fight a lot still, so it should be fun.
1: But now, within the past decade, um, sugar sales are actually up again.
0: But the, not to spoil it, but up <laughs> is kind of a relative term. Right. Because they fell a lot right. since, like, the 70s. So,
1: so uh, if that sounds interesting to you, then stay with us. Musical interlude.
0: <laughs>
1: um, Okay, so so before I talk about New York, do you want to know about a little bit about where sugar comes from in general?
0: I'd love to know where sugar comes from.
1: I'm, oh, I'm not going to get into like the ultimate. I mean, it came from Asia, blah, 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 blah. Right. If you want to know more about that, you can look into our candy podcast, which we did a couple, it was like one of our earlier a couple of years ago. And I talked about the ancient origins of candy and sugar processing and things like that. You remember No. No. You don't remember anything. But in America, we were getting our sugar in colonial days, from the Caribbean, so Boston was a big part of the Triangle Trade, but New York was as well. So, how
0: about you explain what the Triangle Trade is? Because maybe some people didn't go to middle school.
1: The Triangle Trade, of which we were one part. So, the Triangle Trade. And actually, you could probably help me too. It starts with slaves in Africa.
0: Slaves, yes. The
1: slaves go to the Caribbean because the slaves are needed for the manual labor to produce the sugar in the Caribbean. From the caribbean we get um, unrefined sugar or molasses which comes up to boston and new york essentially to new england new england produces rum rum goes to it's actually more like a rectangle rum goes to europe and that gets sold and converted into money which then goes to africa to buy slaves right right that's that's more like a tetrahedron it's not quite a triangle, to be honest with it's you. It's
0: a polygon, some it's sort a of polygon. polygon, to be honest. Yeah.
1: So uh, making sugar sucks. It's horrible, horrible labor, which is it really goes back to what Carrot Walker is talking about. It was one of the industries, like cotton in the South, that it was really awful, and it really needed a lot of human hands. And unlike cotton in the South, which after the Civil War became industrialized, they invented machines to do the work, a lot of the, the sugar cane industry is still done by human hands.
0: Do they have uh, machines that can do that work for you? Not
1: a lot. Like, when we talk about Puerto Rico, like, Puerto Rico's economy is still pretty effed. And it's because um, we, America, has, we're still forcing people to harvest and process cane. Um, which means that people get employed for a very short amount of time, make a very small amount of money. And, I mean, you're going out there with, with swords, with machete to cut down. Uh, Sugar cane the cane itself is very fibrous. It's like fiberglass and gets into your skin and the leaves can can cut you as well So it's very physically difficult not to mention that you're working with machetes which get dull very quickly and then you're You know, you're putting machetes into your arms and legs. It's it's Horrendous, horrible work. And beyond that, you're also burning the cane fields too to get rid of a lot of the like uh, underbrush too to get in there. So it's hot, it's humid, it's awful, awful, for work. So step one is just cutting the cane down and kind of like trimming the cane itself. That gets loaded on the trucks and that gets ground down. The process, that process is a little bit more automated now. Traditionally it'd be horses or uh, mules or oxen that would use grinders. It was really easy to get limbs caught in those grinders um, when you were operating them. And apparently there was always a hatchet kept by historically in case someone needed to amputate a limb. Oh God. It just gets worse and worse. And then, now imagine, because it's Caribbean, this is not like you're processing the cane in like beautiful uh, Alaska or something. You have to take the cane juice that's ground out and boil it down in uh, subsequently kind of smaller and smaller and smaller vats. So you're boiling out more and more and more and more of the water and getting a more and more and more condensed sugar syrup. And then finally, if this is before, say, the mid-19th century and you want white sugar, that sugar juice, that condensed sugar syrup would go into a conical mold. And the last of that molasses, the kind of darkness, dark sugar syrup, would drip out the bottom of the conical mold and it would leave a crystallized white sugar on top. So have you ever seen super old-timey, pre-mid-19th century, I don't know, like colonial reenactors, they have the conical sugar, yes? So that is why, because that sugar was always formed in a conical mold.
0: My favorite thing about that sugar is how you get the sugar off with sugar your nippers. sugar snips what yeah, are they called sugar nippers sugar nippers they yeah had, they had
1: these specialized tools and then if you needed sugar a cup of sugar to do your baking you had to nip it and then you had to grate it so it was a very kind of laborious process and it was always wrapped in um, bluish paper because it made the white sugar seem even whiter So white sugar was always in cones, but if you ever see brown sugar in a cone, that's an anachronism. Brown sugar was always um, granulated because it didn't need to go through that conical mold process to drip out the molasses. So that's what it was like kind of in the 17th century, and some of the 18th century. In the 18th century, New Englanders realized it was cheaper to buy the unprocessed brown sugar and then finish finish the refining in New England. So starting in the late 18th century, that's what we started doing in New York. We started uh, buying that more raw sugar and finishing the refining process here in New York City. Some of the first distilleries in New York City were rum distilleries because the big byproduct, of course, of the sugar trade is rum, as we know. So um, later on, we become better known for whiskey. But in the 17th and 18th centuries, we were distilling a lot more rum.
0: Well, what happened was we had a cool war for independence Mm -hmm. against Britain. And then they were like, oh, guess what, guys? You can't get sugar cane and processed sugar from the Caribbean anymore, what are you going to make your alcohol out of? What, what? Right. And we had all of this corn and grain lying around, which we then were forced to turn into whiskey.
1: Whiskey. But in 1770, before the war, New York had 17 rum distilleries. So we were very heavily involved in this rum trade. And we even, because we had so much corn and grain, we made something locally that... Um, a uh, Colin who runs Kings County Distillery out of the Navy Yard, he kind of referred it, referred to it as a rum that was like this. So I can't imagine how that would have tasted. Maybe I should convince him to try to bring it back. Absolutely. it was something between a rum and a whiskey that was made locally, actually right around where the Navy Yard is today, because there was a lot of sugar refining happening right along that area on the East River there. So there was one sugar refiner who would actually go on to be quite famous in 1799 there was a man named william havermeyer who if you live in brooklyn the name havermeyer probably is a little familiar do you know are you familiar with the name havermeyer
0: yes i am why got got some streets around probably some other stuff too probably
1: some other stuff there's a big street in brooklyn havermeyer street and William Havermeyer had developed some um, sugar processing techniques in London that had made him very successful, and he opened a refinery on Van Damme Street in 1807. And in, this refinery that opened in 1807 would eventually become the Domino Sugar Refining Company. So Domino Sugar in the yellow box available on your grocery store shelf is is one of the oldest operating, continuously operating companies in the United States of America, which I think is. Quite amazing. Um, his company starts in Manhattan on Van Damme Street. They eventually move to Brooklyn. They pass from brothers to fathers to sons. And in 1856 is when they moved to the Williamsburg waterfront where the Domino Sugar Factory building remains to this day, although it's no longer operational. When they move in the mid-19th century, they, they mechanize a lot of their process and make it a lot more efficient um, and really revolutionize it. One of the things that they do is they add what are called bone char filters. So bone char is made from ground animal bones. And as opposed to using conical molds and letting the molasses run out, they're actually running molten sugar through these bone char filters and taking out a lot of impurities. So it makes for a very clean, Beautiful sugar. And
0: they still do that today. They still and do that today. That's why vegans can't necessarily eat sugar.
1: Exactly, because it's using animal bones. However, what that meant for New York City in the 19th century is that bones are a big industry in New York. New York was actually better at recycling a lot of things in the 19th century than we are today. There was a we didn't have organized trash pickup in New York, but there were legions of people that would collect recyclable materials from the street, including animal bones. So children and old women, to contribute to the family economy, would go and collect animal bones. You could also get things like metal or glass, and even cotton rags were turned into cotton rag paper. So we didn't have trash pickup, but a lot of the garbage on the street would get recycled and put back into the world in a different form, which is kind of incredible.
0: Isn't there some story about how when a horse would die on the street... It would just lay there, and then people would pick it apart for its useful bits.
1: Yeah, one of the reasons it laid there was because I mean, I mean, there were so many horses in New York City. This is a huge digression, but it's so gross too. I mean, imagine a horse dying today when it's 88 degrees and like 110% humidity, and then it's just gonna sit there for like a week. Imagine that. And there's no public services assigned to come get that thing. Horrific. But at the same time, horses are exceedingly heavy. If it's your horse, you have no resources to move that thing. So it sits there until it rots for a little bit, which makes it easier to split up and move it. So then someone would come get it. And then the legend goes that Peter Cooper, who invented powdered gelatin, did a lot for the horse trade in New York City because you can get gelatin from horse ones, blah, 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 so it goes. But things like, yeah, bone char and different industries did something for it too. And actually, um, the SPCA was founded because of the number of horses that were being treated poorly in New York City who would just get sick um, and be worked to near death and be left in New York City. So they invented horse ambulances. They would come and get them. I know. That's
0: incredible. Incredible. And then
1: nurse them back to health and, like, release them the pasture. Yeah.
0: I'm going to look this up mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. while you keep talking. <laughs>
1: and it's fine. So it's it's tremendous. And then, like, don't even get me started on horse poop in New York City. Automobiles were called saviors from horses because they didn't poop. So bone char. Evaporators were a big thing because um, I mentioned way back in the beginning the sugar syrup was boiled off in open pans. Now they were bu- done in closed pans with steam pipes which meant less char, less caramelization. And then finally centrifuges were introduced which spun out the molasses instead of letting it being dripped. That was all the middle of the 1850s. So in the 1880s is when some of the buildings that still exist on the site in Waynesburg on the East River were built and still exists and um this new refinery was called colossal it was called the greatest sugar refining center in the world it was called the most striking object in the whole of Brooklyn's waterfront and it was called it said it was looked like a german castle it was consolidated with several other sugar refineries on the waterfront and rebranded as domino sugar in 1902 this one plant in brooklyn Produced 3 million pounds of sugar a day in 1902. Uh, And by the end of the 19th century, it refined 98% of the sugar purchased in America, which is a pretty tremendous number. But I would say that that was probably the heyday. Because by the middle of the 20th century, by World War II, it began to be supplanted by alternative sweeteners, like high-fructose corn syrup and artificial sweeteners, some of which were invented right next door in Brooklyn. And Soma is going to be talking a little bit more about that, aren't you, Soma? I'm
0: going to talk about some stuff right now. So, uh, saccharin was the first artificial sweetener that was made, and it was made in 1879. And so there were these two scientists... Ira Ramson and Constantine Fallberg. So they're very, very Prussian men, I guess. Mm-hmm. And so they were working in a lab, and Fallberg spilled something on his hand that they were working on. And then they went home to dinner separately. They didn't live together. And Fallberg was eating dinner and accidentally tasted his hand, which seems strange that you would work in a chemical laboratory and not even wash your hands after going home before eating dinner. But it's lucky that he didn't because he tasted something sweet. And so he immediately ran out, patented it, did not tell Ramson he was doing this. And so till the end of days, Ramson held a very big grudge against Falberg yeah, for keeping like that from him. Dick. Yeah, his his line was, uh, Falberg is a scoundrel. It nauseates <laughs> me to hear my name mentioned in the same breath with him. And so, yeah, but it's a really fun compound uh, Saccharin is 300 times sweeter than sucrose, normal table sugar, mm. and it has zero calories. So there, there are two kinds of sugar substitutes, rough categories. There are ones that are zero calories, so they just pass right through your system without mm. being digested. And then there are ones that are low calorie. But even the ones that are zero calorie, because they are generally so much stronger... Than sugar for example saccharin 300 times stronger than table sugar are you going to put one three hundredth of a scoop into your coffee in order to make it sweet no so there are bulking agents like uh, dextrose and maltodextrin and stuff like that um, that bring up the caloric profile a little bit but not as much as if you did nothing but sugar um so oh wiley your favorite favorite guy yeah dr wiley um, he got told by Teddy Roosevelt at one point because... We well, have to
1: explain who Dr. White. You
0: is. have to explain because he's basically your boyfriend.
1: So, uh, you know, in America in the 19th century, you could pretty much put anything into a bottle and sell it and tell anybody it could, would do whatever. It was just... Wildness, And then in 1906, a law called the Pure Food and Drug Act changed all that that said you can't just put any old shit in a bottle and you have to be honest about what's in there and what it does. And uh, there was a lot of enforcement in that law. And one of the people who was in charge of that was a man named Dr. Wiley, an incredible name. And he was in charge of a team of volunteers and scientists and chemists that would... um, Essentially, they would eat foods and then write down what happened to them. They
0: were called called the Poison Squad, The Poison Squad. Not
1: officially, but that was Uh, their media name. Okay. That's the name the press gave them, which is amazing. And the most amazing part is that nobody died um, while doing this. But anyway, so he was in charge of some of the most um, extraordinary food legislation and litigation at the turn of the century.
0: And one of the things that he hated was saccharin. Mm-hmm. And he went to go have a meeting uh, with Teddy Roosevelt to talk to him about how saccharin was the devil. And Teddy Roosevelt's response was, anybody who says saccharin is injurious to health is an idiot. (laughs) So if anyone tells you that you shouldn't be eating saccharin or sweet and low, you can tell them Teddy Roosevelt is on your side (laughs) and that they're an idiot. So it sounds good. It sounds good.
1: Can you imagine having a meeting with Teddy Roosevelt?
0: right but like what what ended up happening um with saccharin was people fed a ton of saccharin to rats as you do Mm -hmm. and it turned out that those rats got bladder cancer Mm -hmm. so warning gonna give you bladder cancer Mm -hmm. you're gonna eat saccharin you're gonna die Mm -hmm. but what ended up happening was saccharin was interacting with a specific protein in the bladder of a rat humans don't have that protein it was also dependent on the ph of the rat's bladder the ph of a human stomach is completely different uh we don't eat as much saccharin as they were feeding rats basically it was it was a big scam um and as of 2000 i believe they took all warning labels off of saccharin so it was no longer deemed to be a dangerous substance it was something where they had been overzealous in Trying to protect people and it's actually okay. It's not gonna cause you cancer. Unless you're a rat, so
1: how do you convince a rat to eat that much saccharine?
0: I don't know how you do it, but it's not you as it's that. not as good as cyclamate, hmm. which happened it was created after saccharin. Um it's an artificial sweetener you probably don't know about because it does not exist in America. It's banned. It's banned, but the opposite is true in Canada, where saccharin is banned, cyclamate is okay. So in Canada, Sweet and Low is actually made with cyclamate hmm. instead of saccharin. So
1: tell us about cyclamate.
0: Well, there should be is a place.
1: Or am I jumping ahead? It's
0: next. No, it's okay. next. Because the best thing about them is they're complementary to one another. Hmm. So saccharin is kind of a weird aftertaste. And cyclamate has kind of a weird aftertaste. But if you take them both at the same time, their aftertastes cancel each other hmm. out. And so it's just like a strong, wonderful sweetener. It's only like 30 times sweeter than sugar, but it's also zero calorie. So everyone would love it. The way it was made is amazing. Uh, this guy named Michael Sveda in 1937, he was in a lab researching fever-reducing drugs, and as you do in 37, when you're a scientist, he's smoking a cigarette while he's doing this. And he gets some of a compound on his fingers and then he picks up a cigarette and puts a cigarette in his mouth and he realizes this tastes sweet, this is amazing. And he decides, I have discovered a new artificial sweetener. Um, But the Sugar Association thought, this is horrible. And they went out on a crusade to destroy Cyclamate and Saccharin's viability as a product. And one of the people, John Hickson, who was involved in this smear campaign against artificial sweeteners, later on went to work for Big Tobacco. So you know how much you can trust that guy. But the idea was that uh, they they did a study where it turned out that cyclamate caused cancer. Oh no, terrible. (laughs) But when you break it down, they were feeding rats the amount of cyclamate where you would have to drink 800 diet sodas every day in order to get that much cyclamate in your body. So, I mean, if you're going to drink 800 diet sodas in a day... Maybe you would have a problem, but I'm sure if you drank 800 non-diet sodas in a day, you would also have a problem.
1: Dear organic chemists listening to this podcast, how often have you worked in a lab where you are just touching things and then licking your fingers? Because it seems like maybe if you do that more often, you will make all the discoveries in the world. Please answer in the comments below.
0: So it seems like it would stop there because we already have two people who have tasted food, not tasted food, tasted chemicals in a lab and discovered artificial sweeteners. But how about aspartame? Well, uh, in 1965, James Schlatter was working on anti-ulcer drugs. He got stuff on his fingers and he tasted it and he thought this tastes sweet, but he wasn't very sure. So he poured it into his coffee and then drank it on the spot.
1: I mean, does this happen more often than we're aware of? Because my impression is you don't eat a lot of things when you're working in a lab.
0: Maybe we are missing out on every scientific discovery possible because that is not...
1: What we were taught in we, high school we, Yeah, chemistry. Yeah,
0: Um just, just to skip ahead, um, sucralose, which <laughs> is what Splenda is made out of, it was created god this is the best story so uh in 1975 there were two people who were working on it and uh one person was like a grad student who was uh from india i believe and then there was the head researcher and they were working on insecticides and so the head researcher told the assistant to test the compound but he understood it as taste the compound Despite the fact that they were working on insecticides. And then he tasted the compound. And that's why we have Splenda. Because some dude misheard someone else and ate something that was supposed to be an insecticide. Because he didn't
1: say, taste the compound. He said, he said test he it. the compound. And he misheard taste. And he ate it. And he didn't die. And we have Splenda. But can you imagine that? Comp- he was like, oh, it tastes sweet. And then his advisor was like, wait, what? <laughs> what
0: did you just do? And it's incredible. It's just, if we just tasted more things, I mean, this is probably a bias in science where there's like (laughs) hundreds of thousands of scientists dying every year (laughs) by eating things they shouldn't eat. And these are just the lucky few that survived and actually got a good taste out of what they were testing. But it seems pretty incredible. It's just a bunch of mishaps that we really have any sort of artificial sweeteners at all.
1: So the first one you talked about it when, before we move on to high fructose corn syrup. Um, so saccharin, okay, so it wasn't created here in Brooklyn, but saccharin is probably better known by its brand name, Sweetenlow, Low, which was created here in Brooklyn. So uh, there's a great book by the name of Sweetenlow, Low, I believe, all about the Eisenstadt family. And the Eisenstats owned a diner outside of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which was very, very, very busy during World War II. And uh, business was waning after World War II. And the story goes that they were frustrated by the sugar bowls on their table, that they were always getting sticky from the humidity and flies and things like that. And uh, they were trying to figure out what to do because the diner was failing as business was leaving, as people were getting laid off from the Navy Yard. And they had this idea of putting sugar into little packets. And Ben Eisenstadt, the diner owner, had worked in a tea a tea bagging factory. <laughs> yeah, why can't I say that without laughing? A tea bagging factory when he was little when he first immigrated <laughs> to America. And he was like, if only I knew a way to put tea into small to put sugar into small packets, and his wife was like, Hey stupid, remember when you worked in the tea bagging factory? And so apparently he tinkered with the machine and figured out how to put the sugar into small bags. And the story goes, he t- he went to Domino's and was like, hey, do you want to buy this machine? And Domino's was like, we're not interested. And then, like a month later, started putting sugar into their own packets. That's
0: fucked up.
1: Fucked up. I'm
0: never buying Domino's sugar again, and I hope they knock down that building.
1: I mean, this was all a very long time ago. I
0: hold a grudge.
1: So, but it all worked out in the end. So, if, you know, I think he cried himself to sleep because he was a trusting guy and didn't do a non-disclosure. But then his wife was also apparently a chronic dieter, and she had the idea of marketing saccharin, again, formerly for just a medical crowd, to a dieting crowd. And so he was the idea of taking saccharin, which you know about the the fun, like, accessories that saccharin. have. The accessories
0: for saccharin are the best part of saccharin and i wish people would bring it back
1: bring it back
0: what are the fun accessories they
1: used to be saccharin used to come in pills and so there were these things that were called i don't know if this is what they were called actually saccharin birds and there were these like metal golden birds with bejeweled eyes and you opened them up and your saccharin pills were inside and there were tiny golden tongs you used to drop your saccharin pills into your coffee or tea
0: please Google this because so they are beautiful and amazing. So beautiful. Saccharin also still comes in pills oh. because I know someone that every time they go overseas, they come back with a ton of bottles that are basically PEZ dispensers for saccharin for tablets.
1: I, if I had them, i put them in my saccharine bird. I have a little sparrow with green jeweled eyes. So cool. Um, so it was his idea to make the saccharine in a powdered form and then put it into packets. And then he branded it Sweet and Low after a popular song of the time. And it still comes with the pink packets to this day. It is still packaged in Brooklyn to this day. It is uh, one of the biggest industries out of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And I took a tour of the factory, and I have to say, one of the most amazing things, a Cumberland packing is the name of the the, the packing plant today when you walk into the sweet and low packing plants which today is still in the original diner that the eisenstats owned during the 1940s the air tastes sweet you can stick out your tongue and lick the air and taste the saccharin. it is mind-blowing
0: one of my favorite meals was dumping crystal light into the powder crystal light mm-hmm. into like a gallon jug or whatever, and then putting my mouth above it <laughs> and opening and closing to get that sweet lemonade taste in my mouth without having to fill the pitcher with water.
1: That's the whole factory.
0: I will live there. You
1: can like blink and feel it in your eye and your eyes and when you go home you can you can like lick your hand. And I mean, when I was just there for an hour, I can't imagine what it's like to work an 8-hour shift there. And they're also they package and they're the distributors of um, sugar in the raw. Which is a weird fact I learned about that is that they get these enormous, you know, huge who choose multiple ton bags of sugar in from all over the world. And wherever the sugar comes in from, Colombia or Hawaii, they then just package it straight from that you know, multiple ton bag of it. So every packet of sugar in the raw you get is like a single origin sugar. It's slightly different based on the climate and the soil of where it came from. So you can go to like the Starbucks on the Upper West Side and the Starbucks on the Lower East Side and get two packets of sugar in the raw and it's gonna taste slightly different based on where it came from internationally.
0: Can I talk about sugar in the raw a little bit? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So I think that people like sugar in the raw. I do. Because it's not sugar. It doesn't look refined. It comes in these big, chunky crystals. You can't say it's not It's not not white sugar. It's not white sugar. So people look at that, and it's like eating wheat bread, where you look at that, and you're like, oh. It's healthier for me. It's healthier for me because... It doesn't look as refined as Mm -hmm. white sugar. Right. And then they'll look at, say, the nutrition information where it says, I believe it has a uh, turbinado sugar has like 149 calories per quarter cup and other sugar has like 200 calories per quarter cup. And they're like, oh my God, it's healthier. No, it's just really big crystals and there's more space in that quarter cup and it's still fucking sugar and there's no difference between the two. There's a little bit of iron yeah. because it is brown sugar, but if you're getting most of your iron intake from sugar sure. in the raw, probably you should reevaluate your diet. But it tastes delicious. And yeah. like you said, it's if like a like single origin. It's, it's you know, brown sugar. Brown sugar is fine.
1: Honey, maple, brown sugar, white sugar. If you're dealing with a pure sucrose, you know, you're, it's, you're dealing with a pure sucrose. Um, You should be picking things based on flavor, but you should be understanding that you're consuming sugar at this point. And you should be choosing your calories wisely because it doesn't matter um, whether it's refined or unrefined. You're having the same health effects regardless. The main sweetener that is supplanting cane sugar is high fructose corn syrup. And I feel like most people don't even understand what that is. I don't even really know what the difference between corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup is.
0: I'm gonna have a lot of quizzing for you. I tried to buy high fructose corn syrup many times on the internet.
1: You can't buy that as a consumer. You can't.
0: I mean, maybe you can Mm. if you figure out some place and you like wink and nod. Ah. But as far as I can tell, you cannot buy high fructose corn syrup as a normal gel.
1: Could you make it? If I bought corn syrup, could I take take it home and turn it into high fructose Maybe corn syrup? Maybe through
0: some sort of magic, hmm. using enzymes
1: hmm.
0: and magic powers, okay. but I don't know.
1: Okay, so tell me about it.
0: Alright, when you have table sugar, it's made out of sucrose. Pretty much everything that is sweet generally made out of sucrose. Um, sucrose is a disaccharide, okay. which means it's made up of two di-saccharide sugar things and so the two things that it's made up of are glucose and fructose and those are both called monosaccharides and when you have uh glucose is what our body uses for energy okay fructose our body can use for energy but it just takes a little bit extra effort for our body to process it into a state where we can use it so a lot of fruits just have sucrose in them But some of them do have high amounts of fructose. For example, apples have twice as much fructose as sucrose, whereas apricots have 10 times more sucrose than fructose.
1: So sucrose contains fructose, but you can also, but a fruit can contain both sucrose and fructose.
0: Yes. Okay. Yes. And generally, once you start to digest sucrose, it splits into glucose and fructose. So in the end, it's basically the same if you have them apart or together, but... Fruits do have fructose in them, in addition to the fructose that's already inside of the sucrose. And so the reason why we like eating things like apples is if you went outside and you picked up an apple and you started to eat it, and then you went outside and you picked up some dirt and you started to eat it, one of those is healthier for you. An apple is slightly healthier than dirt, and things tasting good is the way that our body signals, yes, this is healthy for you, please keep eating it. The reason why we like to eat fruit is because fruit is healthy for us, and we need the energy that is contained in those sugars in order to function. We do not need whatever is in dirt to function. We do not need to eat mud to function, which is why mud does not taste good.
1: The sucrose is energy for our body. It's a carbohydrate, and the glucose is energy for our brain specifically. Our brain needs it to function.
0: Yeah, I think everything needs glucose. But yeah, our our brain does use glucose all the time. Specifically. Specifically, yes. Um, And so once you take in sucrose or fructose or whatever, you have to process a little bit. Maybe you split the sucrose into a glucose and a fructose. Then the fructose gets extra processed in order to turn it into something our body can use, like a glucose. So then on the other end, instead of things that taste good... Uh, You have polysaccharides, which are made up of long chains of glucose and fructose and all of that. And a polysaccharide is basically like a starch. um, Things that don't taste sweet but contain energy. They take a lot of work to break down, which is why our body doesn't really care about them enough to make them taste sweet. But, fun experiment, if you get a saltine cracker and you brush off some of the salt then you put it in your mouth and you just let it sit there. It's not going to taste sweet because it's a polysaccharide, it's starch, doesn't taste that great. But as you let it sit there, in your saliva are enzymes that will break down polysaccharides. And imagine a polysaccharide is just a long, long string of monosaccharides. So you have your glucose, you have your fructose, you have all that. And As this cracker is sitting in your mouth, the enzymes go along that polysaccharide and snip it into smaller and smaller pieces until it just becomes glucose and fructose. So it ends up tasting sweet if you let it sit in your mouth for a few minutes, thanks to the glory of those enzymes.
1: I've tried it, it's true.
0: And so nature can also do that. So the ripening of a fruit is the conversion of a starch, which is a stored form of energy, into a sugar such as sucrose, uh, that animals want to eat. So if I have an apple on a tree, uh, when it's ready to go, when I, as a tree, want to spread the seeds inside of this apple around, um, I convert all of those starches to sugars, an animal eats it and then, you know, goes and poops some seeds all around the world. (laughs) And then I get a bunch of new apple trees. But you can see it with something like a green banana, where you eat a green banana, it tastes like a potato... But then you need a ripe banana Mm -hmm. and all of those carbohydrates, those long chain carbohydrates have been converted into mono and disaccharides that actually taste sweet. Okay. So high fructose corn syrup works exactly the same way. What you pretty much do is you take corn starch, which as you can tell is just a starch. And then you use enzymes on it to break those starches down into monosaccharides. So, into things that actually taste sweet, so if you had to guess, all right you have, you have oh God, table okay. right you have table sugar,, okay. which is made up of sucrose okay. disaccharides disaccharide. 50 50 between what two monosaccharides,:
1: glucose and fructose yes, fructose
0: You can say it however you feel is right in your heart.
1: okay. <laughs> so
0: if you had high fructose corn syrup right, what do you think the percent is of fructose? to glucose
1: i'm gonna guess there's more sure but i have to guess a percent
0: you have to give me a percent out of 100 if you had sucrose it would be 50 well, 50 it was
1: 50 50 i'm gonna guess that maybe it's like 75 to 25
0: is that high enough
1: i don't know soma is it 90 to 10
0: 55 percent fructose That's in it. high fructose corn syrup five
1: percent more
0: it is not even very high huh. in high fructose corn syrup Although, they did studies where they took a bunch of sodas off of the shelf and then they measured the amount of fructose versus glucose. Mm-hmm. Even though they say they're using a 55% high fructose corn syrup solution, uh, it might be more like 65 hmm. in Pepsi and Coke. So 65% fructose, 35% glucose. It's a mystery. Kind okay. of a mystery. But generally, high fructose corn syrup is not pure fructose. It is simply cornstarch broken down, a little extra processing to turn some of those glucose into fructose. Okay. But why does that matter? Who cares? Oh, tell me. Well, there's this guy, Dr. Lustig. He is famous on the internet because he hates sugar. But he doesn't just hate sugar. He specifically hates fructose. And he says that fructose is a Trojan horse into our bodies that will kill us, pretty much.
1: Do you believe him? (sighs)
0: I will not pass judgment on what he says it's difficult but the issue is that if you are drinking something that has high fructose corn syrup in it that extra five percent fructose is not enough fructose to destroy you because if you're eating apples you're eating a ton of fructose, maybe that fiber is slowing its journey down through your body. Well, what he's saying is fructose does not make you feel full in the same Mm. way that glucose does. So if you have something with extra fructose in it, generally in nature, it's 50-50 glucose fructose-ish. Depend Like it's an apple, that's going to be a little bit different. But generally, they come together. So when you eat them both together, your body knows I've had enough sugar. But you can eat tons and tons and tons of fructose And if you're not getting enough glucose, your body doesn't understand how much sugar it's had, and it just wants more, 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 more. And additionally, all that fructose needs to be processed more than glucose. Like, glucose is ready to go once it hits your body. Fructose, not the case. Uh, Dr. Lustig argues that it's creating liver toxicity in the same way that if you were drinking a lot of extra alcohol all the time, uh, you get a buildup in your liver. Same thing with drinking a lot of fructose, whether it comes from two liters
1: of apple juice or two liters of pepsi
0: right wherever it comes from it is destroying your body yeah a lot of people think that he's overblowing this but a lot of people don't so i I think that what it ends up boiling down to is it's not that hard to avoid extra fructose like just don't drink apple juice maybe um And you can eat apples, it's fine. Extra fiber in there, everything becomes easy. But high fructose corn syrup is not anything to worry about because it's not that much different from normal sugar. People don't agree with that. They see it as a terrifying chemical, despite the fact that chemically, it's basically the same thing as sugar, but uh, it has extra words in front of it. It sounds like science, can't eat it.
1: High fructose corn syrup is one of the things that killed the cane sugar industry. Which means that about 10 years ago, uh, the Domino Sugar Factory in Williamsburg shut down. It kind of it went through a lot of different owners. A lot of people were laid off. A decade ago, it shut down. And it's been abandoned since then because it's been difficult to find developers who can deliver an effective plan that's approved by the city and by the neighborhood. It's right there on the waterfront. And the first plan that was um, put forward was called architecturally offensive. It was so bad, (laughs) which to me just looked like every other building in New York City. So I don't know what the big deal was. But I guess the the big thing was it was blocking views um, of Manhattan for the people who lived in that area of Williamsburg. Um, it, the area was then bought by two trees, which are the real estate giants who essentially created the the neighborhood of Dumbo, if you're familiar with the world of Brooklyn real estate. And... Their plan invokes the skylines of Shanghai and Dubai. It's got these postmodernist towers that are very large, but have these kind of loopholes in the middle, these keyholes. So you can actually look through and see the Manhattan skyline. There are a couple, actually there's just one building, the 1887 refinery that is historically landmarked. So that building is going to be offices. For they're kind of geared towards small businesses even maybe some artist studios things like that Um, they want to make a lot of commercial space for offices they as well as residential spaces um what's sad about the whole thing it is going to be developed into condos it's going to follow suit with what new york city has been for the past decade um, I just read this report out of our new mayor's office that rents in New York City. Have you heard this? No. Rents in New York have gone up by 50% in the past 10 years. Incomes have gone down by 5%. Yowch. Yowch. So we have been this, this residential, like, it just it keeps moving forward at this tremendous pace. Um, what's sad is that there's only one structure that is being saved. Everything else can be raised at will um which is sad it's been a part of the waterfront for a very long time and the thing i'm most sad about is that there's this mid-20th century building which no one else seems to care about you're
0: so sad about this building i
1: don't even remember what it does anymore i think it's one of the refinery buildings and it's already mostly gone um what i loved about it is this really tall building has a domino sign on top of it and the sign is going to be saved and moved to the refinery house but the top of it had it was the office buildings and the uh, Glass at the top of this huge building was all of these different shades of blue to kind of go with the yellow of the Domino's packaging. And all the glass has already been taken out. It's gone. So um, right now is probably your last and only chance to see the inside of these structures before they're redeveloped. So if you get a chance to go there before it's closed, maybe it'll be extended, maybe it's not. Carpe diem. Now is the time. What have we learned today?
0: What did we learn? High fructose corn syrup. Not so bad. Not so bad.
1: Sugar in general, everything in moderation. Kara Walker, remind us of the past. The sugar trade's pretty miserable. It still exists.
0: Yeah, it's not going anywhere. It's not
1: going anywhere. Our sugar still comes from the same areas. Still pretty much brought to us by the same people. Although more the process is mechanized, the, lot of the harvest is not. This has been the Masters of Social Gastronomy podcast, and we'll be back in a couple weeks with more food and science and history. Thanks for listening.